the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Gray Reinhardt chased from the podcast studio by angry villagers enraged by his competence and good humor. And while a floating continent and a castaway planet might be names for creative cocktails involving chocolate ice cream and gin, they also run rampant in Flint and Spore's new Boundary Universe entry, plus part 44 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Good to be back with you, although my throat continues to behave as if I've swallowed a pile of broken glass and a 13-year-old boy who has just hit puberty. I want to thank Gray Reinhardt for hosting the podcast for the past four weeks. Gray's equanimity and ability to pronounce words like equanimity correctly will be missed but the Filking community was up in arms at his absence, and he had to go back or risk riots breaking out at science fiction conventions and broken guitars and auto harps littering hotel floors. Thanks very much, Gray, for filling in. This time we talk with Eric Flint and Reich E. Spore about their new entry in the Boundary Hard Science Fiction Universe and the start of a new subseries set there. The book is Castaway Planet, if you love the Swiss family Robinson and Robinson Crusoe and the Mysterious Island, you'll find echoes of all three in this novel. Pretty strong echoes in some cases. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. Now, here's the news. wanted to tell you about a very interesting development going on this summer, July 24th to August 2nd. This is the Bain Writers Boot Camp to be held in Wake Forest, North Carolina. If you've ever wanted to write a science fiction or fantasy adventure story or novel, this may be the place for you. We'll take you and shape you during this very intense and fun week. Mornings will have a writing workshop led by yours truly with editors Jim Menz and Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf making appearances. Then in the afternoon, here's the cool part, we will get the kind of hands-on experience that writers so often really need to write convincing story-driven fiction, but seldom get. We're bringing in the experts. We'll participate in weapons training with a team of medieval specialists. We'll go to a shooting range to fire weapons, both modern and historical. We'll take a lesson in hand-to-hand combat. And to finish off the week, we will launch a real rocket with Dr. Travis S. Taylor, a real rocket scientist and Bain author. Guest writers will visit during the week, and these will include Travis Taylor, Tom Crapman, and David Drake. To find out more or register, visit the Bain Writers Bootcamp website. Now that's www.bain.com forward slash writersbootcamp.asp www.bain.com forward slash writersbootcamp.asp. You can also email info at bain.com and request that we send you the link if you didn't get that down. It's going to be a lot of fun, and if you have any inclination to become a science fiction or fantasy writer, check it out. 
want to welcome Eric Flint and Reiki Spore to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi there. Eric Flint is the creator of the Alternate History Ring of Fire series, beginning with his groundbreaking first book in the series, 1632, and continuing through many best-selling books, stories, and collaborations. Eric's writing career began with the science fiction first contact novel, Mother of Demons. With David Drake, he collaborated on the six-volume Belisarius series, and he collaborated with a great many other writers, including David Weber, Mercedes Lackey, Katie Wentworth, Dave Freer, and Reiki Spohr. Reiki Spohr is the author of Bane books, including Digital Night, Paradigms Lost, which bears a striking resemblance to Digital Night, but much prettier, the Arenaverse novels Grand Central Arena and Spheres of Influence in an upcoming third entry. He's also the author of Epic Fantasy Adventure Phoenix Rising and Upcoming Phoenix in Shadow, which is really great. It's coming up in the spring. With Eric Flint, he's the co-author of the Hard Science Fiction Boundary series, including Boundary, Threshold, and Portal. Now out is the first book in a new series set within the Boundary universe. It's called Castaway Planet. It's available at booksellers everywhere. So where, or should I say, when are we within the Boundary universe in Castaway Planet, guys? Roughly, roughly two centuries after the end of Portal. Roughly. Yeah, we didn't set a specific uh, date, but minimum, I'd say, 150 years and 200 probably is the the uh, other you know, the other end, somewhere in there. What's the state of technological development now for humanity and uh, and the other species we've met back in the uh, in the Boundary books? As with many other other books that are set, you know, in the, in the farther future, I've actually had to be very conservative in order to keep the story. Uh, easily understood without my having to spend half the book explaining what all the gadgetry is like. But even so, uh, there's been quite a bit of advance since uh, Portal. Everybody uh, tends to have what they call Omnis, which are sort of like a, uh, a smartphone on steroids. I actually uh, thought of them based on something Brian Daly wrote back in the 1980s, that uh, uh, basically it's a unit that is not just a computer, it's your connectivity, it's your game console, it's your computational thing, it's a measuring unit, it's, it does everything that a small unit of computation and sensors could possibly do for you. They have faster-than-light travel that they finally decoded out of something that the old Bemis left behind, um, which they call the trapdoor drive. That's a translated term from the Bemis, which um, was the idea is that it drops through into some other parallel universe just like dropping through a trapdoor out of ours. We've, uh, I mean, we should mention probably that the, the whole point of the first three books is that humanity discovers a cache of alien technology within our solar system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they discover that about the time that the dinosaurs disappeared, there, were, there was an alien presence in our solar system and something happened that caused them to argue with each other, which, among other things, was actually what caused the uh, asteroid that hit the Earth and... Uh, uh, at least contributed to the uh, demise of the dinosaurs. Those ended up being called Bemis, nicknamed from Bug-Eyed Monster, B-E-M. Um, Bemis Sicordi being the scientific name assigned by Helen Sutter. <laughs> but uh, then by at the end of Portal, we discover that some very similar aliens have evolved from species left, in, left on Europa by the old Bemis. They are not, in fact, the same species. But because they started out with the same similar, with a very similar body plan, and over the millions of years re-evolved, they look to human eyes very similar. Although there's a lot of 
differences if you look at them carefully. But they uh, they are now starting to they have become partners with the humanity junior partners because they are uh, they started out as purely um, water dwelling creatures and uh, we had to, and uh, in in the world of Castaway Planet we have genetically engineered a, a, a strain of them that can be amphibious. Um, and that's part of, you know, one of the characters is from that scene. Yeah, and thus hang out with, with humans. Uh, so, Castaway Planet, might there be a clue in the title of, of what the plot of the book is about? <laughs> no, no, not, 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 a, not a trace. It's purely uh, uh, um, metaphorical. Yeah. That's... <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way we'd get Swiss Family in the title, but I just couldn't <laughs> figure out any way that would work. Uh, yeah, there's no attempt in the title or in the book. I mean, this book is really a science fiction retelling of mostly the um, Swiss Family Robinson story, although one uh, change which Reich wanted to make and was finally made was that if those of you who read Swiss Family Robinson, they, the, the family arrives on um, their shipwreck onto the island by in the course of the shipwreck, an enormous quantity of goods sort of float ashore. So they are really very well equipped. And we start the adventure with our heroes seeming to be, or heroines mostly, seeming to be very well equipped. But then something happens, which I'm not going to discuss because that will be a spoiler. And they wind up, in this respect, being much closer to um, um, Jules Verne's Mysterious Island, where they really barely have a pot to piss in. Um, <laughs> Well, they have their omnis, which sort of serve them the same way for those of you who read Burns. It's my favorite novel by Burns. Uh, the, the, uh, the engineer has his watch, which, which sort of is where they get started. The omnis are much more useful individually than Osiris Harding's watch was, but Osiris was at least, they were at least on, a, on, on Earth and didn't have to worry about a completely alien environment. So I, I figured they needed some sort of an advantage. <laughs> So who are these people in Castaway Planet? We meet the family Kamei. Who are they? How how are family structured in this this future? I um I actually uh, very consciously designed the Kimes. Partly it was deliberately me and Eric had already discussed it. It's a deliberate inversion of the structure of the Swiss Family Robinson, where there were there were all boys except for the mom. So in this case, it's all girls except for the dad. And um, Laura Kime, the mother, is the strongest, toughest, most physically uh, capable member of the uh, family, with the exception of their alien companion. Um, she is also the driving force in the family. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, her husband is not uh, capable or, or able to exert his own force when needed, but she's just the more, the more, the larger, taller, stronger one. And in a, in a pioneering setting, that counts for something. The name was deliberately chosen. Robin in, in, in Robinson means bright fame. And in Japanese, Kimei also means bright fame. So I deliberately chose that as a reference there. Uh. Um, other than that, we have four daughters, um, ranging from one who's basically an adult, Caroline, to Sakura, who's one of the viewpoint characters, and then Melody, and finally Hitomi, the youngest, who's about six. The, uh, partly, I was trying to design them to fill certain roles, but also I, I admit that the 
characters echo my own family, which happens to be exactly the same size, six people uh, with four children. I just happen to have two boys and two girls rather than old girls or old boys. Um, And there are some similarities. Um, Caroline in particular does echo my oldest uh, son, uh, Christopher, in some ways with her uh, sense of order and her interest in nature and things. She's very similar. They're all, they're a close-knit family that works together, which is vital for their survival. Um, there is, while they have their own conflicts, and they certainly aren't uh, without differences, um, they're, they're very much a very strongly connected family, which I felt is reasonable. I mean, if you're going to be choosing people who are going to be colonizing, because they're originally a regular colony ship, they're going to be colonizing some world far away. You're not going to be choosing people who have problems to begin with. You don't need that. You're going to be choosing people who pass a whole bunch of, are these people reasonably stable tests? Yeah. So this is not a novel about a dysfunctional family that falls apart under stress. <laughs> oh, no, I never um, and uh, Sakura is, she's sort of, she's not our main character. She's sort of our heroine and viewpoint character. Uh, what's she like? Sakura? Yeah, Sakura. Is the, she is a, um, she's the sort who charges forward and gets herself in trouble, is the best way to put it. She thinks, she, uh, in a way, I was echoing the dynamic of one of my favorite, um, not young adult, but uh older children's series, the Danny Dunn series. Mm-hmm. Um, Sakura, in some ways, is sort of like a slightly more in-control Danny. Um, she still, she tends to try to do things without thinking on impulse. She, that doesn't mean she's stupid. She's extremely smart, but she'll do things on impulse. But when she reigns in her impulses, she's um, smart and controlled. She is the pilot, or the closest thing they have to a pilot. She was starting her pilot training um, en route to their colony. Turns out that that's a very important thing for her to know. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she is in no way a fully trained pilot. Well, also along is uh, Ratrar, nicknamed Whips, fortunately. How do you say it? Haratrar. Haratrar. Uh, who is the descendant of a character in Portal? Can you tell us about Whips? Whips is Whips or Haratrar. Um, is one of the descendants of the character that we see in the um, um, short story Blush, in the short story Sky Spark. Available at BaneEbooks.com. Anyway, go on, sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, Whips is one of the new, relatively new amphibious uh, Benny strain. Um, he is a teenager um, and uh, about the same age as Sakura, roughly. Um, the two of them grew up because their father is one of the people who's been involved in um, the process of acclimating uh, the, uh, these new Bemis to uh, civilization. He's, he's, um, he's one of the scientists who's been um, observing this new species, because they really are a new species. I mean, they're, they're still closely related, obviously, to their aquatic brethren, but the very fact that they can operate in two separate environments pretty well um, separates them on both ends. Um, Whips is the counterbalance to Sakura's impulses. Um, he is the slow and thoughtful one who waits and considers things before he acts most of the time. Um, he is physically by far the largest member of the uh, group of castaways, um, which comes in very handy considering that that also means he is the strongest and most capable of defending them 
when necessary. I remember you describing it in, in, in the book, but about how big is he? Um, he weighs, I have to look it up, I think he weighs something close to 400, 500 pounds. Dead. That's my 400 pounds, that's my... Um... If you go back to the earlier books, Boundary, the Boundaries uh, series, now, this is not the same species as the bevies, but it is related. And they're animals. I mean, they're, they're bigger than humans. Uh, they have a completely different body plan, but they're, they're not small. And um, they don't have a, a skeleton in the same sense that, that, that vertebrates do. So they're, they're, they really are built very differently. Um, but, yeah, he's at least twice the size in terms of weight, at least, of a human being. How do Whips and Sakura uh, become friends? Well, they grow up together. Um, Whips, were, you know, as I said, you know, her father has been working with them, with the, with the species. Um, and uh, they therefore grew up around families of these, uh, of these new bennies. And Whips and Sakura grew up next to each other when Whips was a little, little well, little, relatively speaking, creature, and uh, Sakura was a baby. And the two of them just bonded because Sakura had no reason to be afraid. Everybody treated Whips and his people as being just, you know, other creatures around them, nothing to be afraid of. So she didn't learn to be afraid, even though from the point of view of most of us, <laughs> Whips is a bug-eyed monster. He's terrifying. He's got uh, his huge ten three um, three partition tentacles um, that actually aren't quite tentacles, but they will look like that, with these sort of claw-like things that extend, and he's got this ripping beak with a tongue in it, and all. <laughs> he's terrifying from the point of view of most people, but to her, it just never even occurred. And Whips was exactly the kind of temperament that got along with her. He would put up with her, put up with her climbing on him and uh, playing and she, and while he was slow, she was patient enough to let him catch up when she wanted to do something fun. And so they just got along like regular kids. Just a very strange pair. Is that, uh, I think Quips is depicted on the cover, which is uh, another beautiful Bob Eggleton cover. Standing by her. Um, sort of. Sort of. Not exactly the way that I would have imagined him, but it's a beautiful cover. It is pretty. You know, gorgeous cover, and I'd like to get a poster of that one. <laughs> there's emergency crash landing and uh not to give away any spoilers much but uh the the family Kamei obviously finds itself on a planet and they name it lincoln um why do they name it lincoln i thought that was kind of amusing <laughs> well there's two reasons they name it lincoln one is the meta reason the reason that i chose to name it lincoln and uh, Eric already touched on that, that there's two major inspirations for this book. One, of course, Swiss Family Robinson, uh, the other one being Mysterious Island. And Mysterious Island, of course, the castaways there name their island Lincoln Island because they are mostly escapees from the Union Army during the Civil War. So they're naming it after President Lincoln. Um, of course, I didn't believe that uh, the, the kids wouldn't be thinking too much about President Lincoln then. So... I had uh, uh, Hitomi named it. When they realized that they were going to be naming the planet themselves, Hitomi said she wanted to name it Lincoln. And everyone asks why. And she says, well, because she wanted to name it after the co because it was this beautiful Lincoln green color. She'd learned about Lincoln green from reading the Robin Hood books. 
So that allowed me to name it Lincoln without trying to figure out why they would name it after some ancient president. Yeah, well, I like the idea of it being named after men in tights. But, uh, so, <laughs> so tell us about Lincoln. It's uh, it has a very interesting geographical geological characteristics. Um, it's Earth-like, but it's really totally alien. I mean, they can live there. How about the continents, for instance? Those were cool. Originally, Eric uh, wanted us to, to put this on one of the huge water worlds that were discovered. That, uh, that some of them have um, oceans that are like 1,000 miles deep, according to what we've been able to figure out. Um, but when I started looking at the physics of that, um, I couldn't imagine how you'd be able to get geology to work such that you'd get the elements and stuff into the water uh, that would be necessary for life as we know it. And, of course, we need life as we know it to support our uh, castaways. Um, so I ended up compromising. Lincoln is a water world, and it is covered with an ocean that averages somewhere around 100 kilometers deep, um, which is just – which is – deep enough to have some very interesting behavior, such as an awful lot of it actually ends up being not so much water as one of the weirder um, ice variants. Um, I think ice six is the one to buy. I have to look up, because I've actually got a diagram and a whole bunch of notes on where and what temperatures the ice change, you know, which temperatures they transition, all that kind of thing. Um, but what this does is it allows, there's, there's still enough geo ability for the geology to function through this casing and get all the materials into it. But it is so deep that you can't really get any permanent um, land. But we need somewhere for our castaways to land on. They can't just go floating around the ocean. Well, I happen to know that there have been bases of coral floating on Earth. So I thought, well, what if something like that evolved and just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and developed some structural components, probably uh, carbon five, you know, natural carbon nanotubes or something like that, which supported even so it could be effectively geologically sized pieces of floating coral. Um, and that is, of course, what they've landed on. These things that look like islands and continents and when you walk on them, they feel like islands and continents, but they are not. And there's a whole bunch of weird things that come from that that will trip you up if you make the wrong assumptions. Yeah, like, for instance, uh, they, they are still subject to tidal forces, right? Yes, but yeah. not... Yeah, you don't get... But you don't get tides because since they're floating on top of it, you just don't get... Uh, what we get, you know, you don't get this big rush in of water and then flow out of water. It just bobs up and down on, on the uh, bulge. Plus, uh, they don't quite have the same tides because they, while they have the solar tides, they don't have really large uh, moon. Yeah, they, they have two moons, right, but they're smaller? They have a couple they're of moons, smaller, they're yeah. much smaller. Yeah. yeah. So, um, tell us about the sort of semi-flora and fauna of Lincoln. That's a cool portion of the book. Eric and I discussed um, the basic idea that a lot of this stuff obviously would have to be derived from um, marine um, backgrounds. And what I started looking at was 
if these things, even if these things are floating for long enough that you can build forests and stuff on them, they're still, um, over long periods of time, not always stable. And they can break apart and flip over and all that. So an awful lot of the stuff is adapted such that it has the ability to survive in both water and in air. In another situation, like here on Earth, that's kind of wasteful in most circumstances because most of the time you can be pretty sure you're going to be in water or you're going to be on land. But that's not true on Lincoln. You could suddenly, you could be sitting there in the middle of a forest and suddenly think breaks apart and you drop into the ocean. Some of it will still evolve to just be land-based because there's some efficiency there. But a lot of it is based on things like, like they have things that look like plants, but they're actually based more on hydroids, uh, which are living creatures uh, related to jellyfish that look very plant-like, but they are not. They can sting you uh, in some cases. Um, and creatures that look like they should be land-based may actually be able to swim in the ocean. Things that look like they should be purely water-based may turn out to be able to come up on land. Uh, both of these um, bite them uh, at various <laughs> points in time, uh, a couple of them literally. The uh, one thing that Eric uh, pointed out and made sure that I emphasized, that, that got emphasized at one point, is there's another catch here, which is that if these uh, floating things are connected to the water in various ways, um, predators could use shark-like senses to home in on you from out in the water and then come up on land so that uh, you could get a, what appears to be a far larger concentration of predators in any given location than would be rational for there to be uh, in a setting that was limited to the land in the way that we understand it. Yeah, shudder. <laughs> so um, the, the seven principles of wilderness survival, can you talk a little bit about what some of those are? And, and we don't want to give spoilers away, but what are some of the parameters, for instance, of uh, finding a suitable shelter on this planet? <laughs> well, in some ways, it's not that much uh, different than here. You look for something that can keep water off and you know, stand up to the winds. But if you have large, hostile creatures out there, you also need something that will protect you from it. The seven principles, of course, are positive mental attitude, which fortunately the Kimes generally have, along with whips. Uh, first aid, shelter, fire, signaling, water, and food. Generally in that order, because you can go without things like, uh, you know, you can go without food for quite a while, but if you're bleeding, you need first aid right away. Um, Signaling, there really isn't too much they can do because they find themselves on a planet that nobody, as far as they know, has ever been to. And, well, even if they could somehow find a way to transmit a signal, well, they're in a different solar system, so that will take however many years it will take for light to cross the distance between them and whoever they're signaling to. Yeah, they're truly alone. Yeah, yes. It's not like even in... You know, in, in Swiss Family Robinson, where, well, they might have been a little bit off course, but somebody could come and see that island and decide to stop by at almost any time. But to come to another star system, somebody really has to want to go there. We've talked about this before, but it, I always like the story. Um, 
Why did you dedicate uh, Paradigms Lost uh, partially to the, the Butcher of Bane? Who is this madman? <laughs> he's, that, he's that other lunatic on the line with us. <laughs> yeah, right. And he got that nickname. <laughs> you want to tell the story, Eric? <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, Rank and I... Um, um, met under inauspicious circumstances, let's call it that. Um, many years ago, back in, oh, 15 years ago now, 2000, um, I edited the release of all... Holy crap! Yeah, the first book came out in 2000. Um, it was Telsey, the Telsey Emerton, first the Telsey Emerton book. I uh, began a project of, of reissuing all the writings of, um, of James H. Metz. Actually, that edition is the first one that I ever put all of it in print. And when the first book came out, which was a collection of a number of the Telsey Amherst stories, there was a big ruckus in the news groups on Usenet, which I don't even know if they're still there anymore. But um, They are. Oh, are they still there? Uh, over the fact that I had edited some of the stories, which I did. Um, and... I was told about this by the person who was at the time, Arnold Bailey, who was at the time running Bain's uh, website. He told, he's the one who told me about it. So I went to investigate. And the ringleader at the time of, of the uh, the one leading the hounds baying at me was uh, someone who went under the moniker of Sea Wasp. I didn't know who he was, but uh, that was the name he is. And um, I wound up getting in a brawl with all of them, but him in particular was the one leading it. But as as the the thing unfolded, he asked me if I would send him the all the documents, including showing him where I had edited, what I had done. So I did. You're, 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 said, you're selling yourself short here, Eric. <laughs> because what I did was I ranted at you that you you said, well, it's out by now. Why don't you just read it and find out if it's actually as bad as you think? And I said, well, I yeah, don't right, want to spend money on something. And you volunteered. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> anyway, I sent him the um, the text. And and see, was, was, of course, right. And he then posted on Usenet, which surprised me, I wasn't expecting this, he posted a very long, detailed analysis of what I had done. And the gist of it was, basically, well, he still shouldn't have done it, but I have to say he did it well. <laughs> um, and what I liked about that, I don't actually mind people disagreeing with me, what, what, what irritated me a great deal about a lot of the... Um, criticisms I was getting in, in the news groups were that I felt that they were um, uh, illegitimate. Um, that I was being accused of things that, number one, I hadn't done. Uh, I, and and I'm, I can be a pretty belligerent fellow. Um, and so I started taunting my critics and pointing out that if I didn't show them where I'd made a change, they would have no idea that I'd done it because they really didn't know the writings to begin with. Um, so I, I sort of set Reich aside, um, and as I recall, I said so publicly at the time. He was sort of my honorable opponent. I didn't agree with him, but that's fine. You know, you don't have to agree with me. But he wasn't taking cheap shots, and he wasn't um, he wasn't slandering me. At some point, I don't remember exactly when, and I had a side discussion with with Reich. But anyway, he mentioned that he he 
did some writing himself, and at one point he rather definitely asked me if I'd be willing to look at some of his stuff, and I said, sure. So he sent me three novellas, which he'd written, uh, all of them based on one character. And I read them, and it was actually quite well written, and I told him that that if we reworked this, he could turn it into a novel, and it'd be much easier to sell a novel in three novellas in today's market. And that if he wanted to do it, um, go ahead, and I would um, essentially act as his informal agent and talk to Jim Bain about publishing it. So that's what Wright did. He rewrote him into a novel, and I talked to Jim Bain, and Jim um, basically was willing to take my word for it. And that became Reich's first novel published, called Digital Night. It came out. What year did it come out, right? 2003. Um, yeah, Actually, right. it was so, the white first brought up that I'd written it to you when you visited me. Because I, I didn't quite have the... I, I felt that it would be rude to bring it up. <laughs> oh, is that how I am? Okay, I can't, I can't remember. At one point, Reich lives in the tri-state area in upstate New York, and... And uh, that's where my wife comes from. And at, at, at that point, her her mother um, had to, had to go to rest home, and so they were selling the house. And and so I was went there. I happened to be there one weekend, and Wright came met with me. Met me. That's when we actually met. Anyway, basically, the way Wright got himself initially published was by picking a fight <laughs> with a proper author. And, yeah, it, it's it's an unusual technique for getting published, and I, I think it, the success rate's probably pretty low in probability terms. It'll work this time around. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, The Butcher of Bane was the title. I, the I, yeah, I enjoyed that title for a while, uh, and I would use it myself just because my basic response to my critics in the news groups is to thumb my nose at them. Um, and... I proceeded to reissue all of all of Schmidt's, all of Christopher Anvil. Actually, when I told Anvil about the ruckus, his response was interesting. He said, "Do these people really think Jimmy wouldn't have wanted you to fix problems?" Um, and he asked me to point out anything in his writing I saw that that I thought needed to be reworked. Um, which actually we did. We reworked Pandora's Planet by bringing in the, all the tower stories. And it was one of the nicest compliments I've ever gotten was Anvil told me, he said, gee, that's when I proposed that to him. He said, you know, that's exactly what John Campbell suggested I do, you know, 30, God, what was that, 40 years ago. He hadn't done it because he thought he didn't have the uh, rights to those stories. Uh. Um so I, I read one time. I reissued a lot of these stories from old authors, and I would edit some of them. Not too many, but I, you know, if I thought a story, if you're issuing a complete works of an author, it poses a different kind of problem than if you're just doing selections. Because if you're just doing selections, you're automatically picking the best stories. But if you do a complete works of, then there are going to be some, you know, less than good stories in the batch, most likely. And the problem I specifically had with Schmitz was the fact that because we were doing the four four to the seven volumes of the, or the Hub stories, we had to do them in a certain kind of order to make them work right. And that meant I didn't have any choice. I couldn't bury weaker stories, which I did with the ones that weren't Hub stories. I buried them all in a great big fat volume called Eternal Frontier, and I didn't bother editing those. We seem to be following also a Robinson Crusoe uh, analog in some ways. Uh, 
Might we expect to re- to meet Friday in a sequel to uh, Castaway Planet? Uh, well, there is going to there is going to be a sequel. Uh, we have a contract for it, and uh, Riker's. I, I I'm not sure. Riker, are you working on that now? Or are you doing? I forgot. Um, I'm about. What I'm you? About 40, I, I think I've just about crossed into novel territory with that one at forty k. Um, oh, okay. All right, but one, you have started writing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm, um, I, I sent you the first piece of it, and uh, I'm well past the part that I sent you. The thing is that uh, it's not exactly Friday. Um, <laughs> it's So you can't use that analogy because it's not a, a local native. But, yes, there is going to be at least one more book um, in the setting uh, on Planet Lincoln. And what happens after that, we'll just see. We do have, of course, uh, the other... The, the short story Disaster, which is uh, up on Bain's site, which uh, gives some background for those who will ask the question of what happened to the main ship when our uh, castaways get detached from it. Um, you do get to find out that answer if you read Disaster. Yeah, that is a short story that's on Bain.com right now. So check that out, and it's free, of course. Give you a good uh, entry point into Castaway Planet. So the book is Castaway Planet by Eric Flint and Reiki Spore. It's now in hardcover at booksellers everywhere and in ebook form, of course. Eric and Reich, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It was a blast to write the to to write it, and I hope that people enjoy it as much as uh, enjoyed writing it. Bye bye. Now here's part 44 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. I am going to grab a description from a previous podcast so you don't have to listen to my voice anymore. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy the kind of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magical-based apocalypse. They're known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here's Bronson Pinchot with part 44 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 20 Gott in Himmel, lassen Sie uns bitte sterben. Translated, God in Heaven, please let us die. Graffiti seen in Dead City, 1925. San Francisco, California. Harkness was smoking a cigarette on the hospital roof when Isaiah found him. The pale horse had wanted to be alone with his dark thoughts. In a foul mood, he tossed the butt over the side and watched it fall. Good news, Isaiah said. 
Pershing told the traveler girl where to find the South Under. Really? Her? The old man had been getting desperate. She's stronger than you realize. Pershing saw that. Isaiah joined him at the railing. It is done. I've already made the call. The chairman will have possession of the complete geotel in a matter of hours. Pershing hid it right under his nose. If Isaiah felt any guilt for taking advantage of such an innocent, he did not let it show. The reader had suffered so much at the hands of the willfully ignorant and evil that there was nothing he wouldn't do to accomplish their mission. So that's it. All we can do now is wait and pray. Harkness nodded thoughtfully. There was no turning back now. But there never was, not after so many sacrifices. Jane had merely been the latest, an innocent girl swept up into their grand scheme, but if this worked, then her sacrifice wouldn't be in vain. The years of lies, the oaths broken, and the hundreds of lives he had taken would have meant something. I would join you in prayer, old friend, but I'm afraid that God will not listen to the likes of me. Francis grimaced as the doctor ran the needle back and forth through the skin of his forehead, stitching the nasty gash back together. He'd bashed his head on a rock in the cave while thrashing back and forth trying to squeeze into the ocean. It had been the most frightening thing he'd ever done, and he knew that he was lucky to be alive. But he didn't feel lucky. No healers, huh? Lance asked from the other table. He'd broken at least one rib, and they were guessing that he might have cracked his hip. Lance looked like Francis felt. Once I convinced them who I am, it didn't matter anyway, he muttered. The one the hospital had on call was away in Hollywood tending to some starlet's sprained ankle, and it was unknown when he would get back. We can't wait around. I'm mobile, Lance said, trying to sit up. Hold still, the nurse ordered him. He sighed and lay back down. They had to be careful what they said in front of witnesses. John and Dan are out, but we've got Rawls and his man. Where do we start? Francis asked, already knowing that it would be futile. Maddie was long gone by now, which meant that Jane was as good as dead. We split up, probably groups of two, start chasing down leads. You aren't going anywhere the young doctor working on Francis's head, said. Neither of you is in any shape, and there are some government men outside waiting to speak with you. I already explained everything, Francis complained. He'd told the state police about how he'd been giving his guests a tour of his mansion's basement when there had been a bright light and a cave-in. Lance and John were both officially dead. They had fake identities, but he knew that as soon as word got to the police that both Browning and Garrett had bullet wounds, then their story was out the window. Right now they were victims, but they needed to get out before the authorities decided that they were somehow involved with the Peace Ray attack. One of them is from the army, the nurse cleaning up Lance added helpfully. He said he had a message for the survivors, but I told him he'd have to wait. What kind of message? Lance asked suspiciously. She shrugged. 
beats me something about imperial blimps. He was talking to that white-haired Negro. Francis was off the table, pushing past the doctor before she had even finished speaking. The iodine-soaked thread swung back and forth in front of his eye as he shoved the doors open. In the hallway, a young man in an army aviator's uniform was walking away. Isaiah Rawls was reading a typed note. He saw Francis coming. Now stay calm, I... Francis tore the note from his hand and scanned it quickly. Sullivan, you son of a bitch, Francis said, grinning. The chairman's personal airship. This had to be it. The timing was too perfect. That had to be where Maddie had taken Jane. We can go after them right now. His pocket watch had been smashed on the rocks, but there was a clock on the waiting room wall. They had one hell of a head start, but if they hurried, no, Isaiah said sternly. He leaned in close so the other people in the area couldn't listen in. It is too dangerous. What? Francis couldn't believe his ears. Are you daft, man? They've got my friend. Even if you could catch them, you expect to board the Tokugawa, defeat its whole crew and get away? You don't even know that's where they are. All you have is the word of one untrustworthy heavy that he saw it docked with a ship off the coast. It's more than we've got now, Francis spat. No wonder the elders sent me out here. Pershing's lack of caution has trickled down. You think it's wise to throw away the lives of an entire cadre of knights on a hunch? Listen to me carefully, Francis. We will get your healer back, but we need to be smart. An overt attack on the Imperium's flagship would be war. Francis didn't care who heard. He threw his hands wide and shouted, Look around, you Rawls, this is war! Dozens of eyes turned toward them. Yes, it was the Imperium who did this, the other patients and hospital staff began to mutter. The senior Grimoire appeared ready to explode. His voice was a barely audible hiss. Come down, Isaiah ordered, and Francis could feel the matching thoughts inside his head. You will not go after that ship. That is an order. You took an oath, and part of that is that you'll follow the elders. There are plans within plans, and your half-cocked actions will have repercussions. Francis was seething. What are you so scared of? The Tokugawa must not be harmed. There are bigger things afoot than you understand, young man. You need to trust me. Before Francis could respond, there was a commotion at the main desk. A group of men in suits and surgical masks were pouring into the waiting area, and in their midst appeared a fat, bellowing bull of a man sputtering and swearing. Who's in charge of this fiasco? I demand to speak with the head. He pulled down his surgical mask, revealing a face that was red and sweating, and shouted at the top of his considerable lungs, Bring me my grandson! Grandfather? Francis asked in bewilderment. He turned back to Isaiah, but the grimoire elder had his head down and was retreating down the hall. Grandfather Cornelius? Francis! Cornelius Gould Stuyvesant lumbered down the hall, past startled onlookers, and engulfed Francis in a hug. His belly was so large that his arms wouldn't close around Francis's back. You're alive! Thank God, boy! What are you doing here? he asked in disbelief, taking in the wall of surgical masks that were watching him. 
I don't. I've come to take you home, Francis, he said. Oh, my, look at that awful wound. What are you doing getting stitches like a commoner? Howard, he snapped his fingers. Heal this man. One of the masks stepped forward. Francis grabbed Cornelius by the lapels and jerked him forward. Francis was much taller and stronger, and he swung the fat man around so hard that the security men reached into their coats for their pistols. You've brought a healer? His grandfather was shocked by the rough treatment. Of course. When I'd heard of the tragedy, I gathered all of my staff into my fastest prototype airship and came straight away. Fastest, he let go of Cornelius. You have this ship here? The Tempest is docked at the city terminal. It will need to be serviced, but we could be back on our way to New York within a few hours. I, Francis pointed at the healer. Howard, right? The man nodded. Follow me, grandfather. I'm going to need to borrow that dirigible. Fay found Heinrich Koenig in the morgue. The room was empty of live people except for him, sitting the wrong way on a chair with his arms folded on the backrest, though there were plenty of dead people lying around. She was a little taken back by the number of shapes under white sheets. Heinrich had heard the boots hit the floor when she'd traveled in. He turned to regard her. The young man appeared very tired with dark circles under his eyes. Hello, Fay. Everybody else is getting patched up. I... She hadn't wanted to be alone with a bunch of strangers, so she'd found the man who'd shot her in the heart instead, because at least she kind of knew him, but saying that out loud seemed silly. What you doing? She blurted. Heinrich turned back to the sheet-covered body. Long, dark hair hung loose from one end. One last vigil, I suppose. I promised Sullivan I would see to her. He gestured at Delilah. I know that there are more pressing matters, but there is something I must do. Faye was confused. Like what? We've got to start looking for chains so we don't really have time for a funeral or nothing. The arrangements for Grandpa's funeral had seemed to take forever, and that was even after he'd been burned to near nothing with the haystack. He gave a sad little shake of his head. Nothing like that. We must see to the living first, though I'm afraid that it is too late for Jane. No, afterward, I will dig Delilah's grave myself. I have much practice at digging graves. She leaned on a big porcelain sink and waited for him to continue. There was a rusty drain hole in the floor, and the idea of what it was for made her uncomfortable. Heinrich rubbed one hand over his face, and she saw that he had his luger sitting in his lap. Why the gun? Because sometimes, when a Lazarus creates undead, the effect can linger for a while. Sometimes, if the active is strong enough, it can last for hours, and anyone who dies in that place could have their spirit trapped. When I followed the orderlies down here with her body, I thought that I felt a tingle of magic. Do you think Delilah could be a zombie? She asked, incredulous. He shrugged. Probably not, but if she is, I will deal with it on my own and spare her dignity. It is a terrible fate, and one that I would never willingly have fallen another. I have known of people waking up as much as twenty-four hours after their death, and they do not even realize it. 
He sure does know a lot about zombies. I heard that you grew up in Dead City. The silence was long and uncomfortable. A sink was dripping. I do not wish to speak of it, he said. Okay, Faye answered, not really knowing what else to say. Would you mind if I helped you keep watch? Heinrich didn't answer then. Seconds passed into minutes, and he had a faraway look in his eyes. Faye grew bored and started counting the drips coming from the faucet, but Lance and Francis were busy. Mr. Browning was medicated asleep, and Mr. Rawls had had to leave to place a telephone call. It wasn't always dead city. It used to be called Berlin, he said finally, sighed. And then it was like a ditch had broken and memories spilled out. It seemed like a magical place to a young boy. My family lived on the outskirts. Father fixed pianos, and he would often bring me along with him into the city. Many of the pianos were in old churches and schools, and while he worked, I would play. I would climb the towers, find the crawl spaces in the walls. Those places became my kingdom, and I was the valiant knight that defended them. There were so many people always moving about, and then the war came, and all of the men went to fight, including my father. In the Great War? she asked. Yeah, we did not know to call it that then. To a little boy, I only knew that I missed my papa very much, and there was not so much happiness anymore. Many of the other boys received letters saying that their fathers had died, but I knew that mine would come home. Food was scarce, and we were often hungry. It got worse, but I got older. I took care of my family, even if it meant stealing the food we ate. Finally, so many of our soldiers had died that the government could not keep up with the letters, and all of us wondered if the war would ever end. But it did end, Faye said. She was no student of history, but she listened to the radio. Everyone knew the brave allies had beat the dastardly Kaiser. Ah, yes, it ended in a flash of light. When I woke up, my home, my town, was rubble. Berlin was ruined, all of the old places crumbled, and in the center was nothing but a smoking hole. I spent days searching for my family, but they were all dead. I'm sorry, she said. He chuckled. Do not be sorry. They were the lucky ones. Were you ever taught in school what happened next? I never went to school. Good, you're not missing anything. History is mostly lies. The Kaiser had grown so desperate that he had used his wizards to keep his soldiers alive. As they were killed, he had their spirits chained to their bodies so that they could continue to defend the fatherland. When the war was over, there were still nearly a million of these poor wretches. They could not die, but the process of this false resurrection had left most of them too dangerous to send back to their homes. The treaty left us bankrupt and unable to care for them, but the Kaiser had a perfect solution. He had a dead city, so why not fill it with his dead subjects? A great wall was raised around the ruins, and the undead were herded inside what about the alive people like you? The survivors were supposed to rebuild. 
It was our duty. We were to be caretakers for these poor soldiers. When the wall went up, there were several thousand of us at first. Faye was aghast. That's terrible. They just left you? Heinrich fingered the Luger. Do you know what happens to the untoten, the undead? The pain of death is upon them still. They never heal from the wounds that sent them there. The pain never lessens. It only grows as does their hunger. Most of them keep their wits for a time. But soon it becomes too much to bear. They lash out in a rage at anything available, including each other. We were caretakers at first. Then we were merely... Food. She covered her mouth, but a little yelp slipped out anyway. König is not my real name. It means king. That's what they called me after a while, because I was the last man alive in that city. I was the king of the living. I survived by my power, by my cunning, by my stealth. The old places where I'd hid and played as a child became my sanctuaries. I spent my days in the walls, in the tunnels, hunting for food, killing the undead that tried to hurt me and my friends. Then after several years, I couldn't take it anymore, and I faded through the Berlin Wall and never looked back. I was fifteen years old, and I thought that I'd had it rough. An Oklahoma shack might as well have been Francis's mansion in comparison. Faye reached over and touched Heinrich gently on the shoulder. Why'd you stay so long? He watched Delilah's sheet for movement, but there was nothing moving there except bad dreams. Because not all of them were mad, many of the dead remained true to who they were in life. My family never got a letter from the front, but... He did come home, most of him. Together, we found a working piano in an old school. He played it every day. The sound gave the other sane ones hope. Finally, I made him stop because the sound attracted the hungered. After that, he had nothing to survive for. But I stayed with Papa until the end. Son of a bitch, Harkness said, peering through the corner of the window into the hospital room. What's he doing here? If he links us to Pershing's death, it could ruin everything. The pale horse watched Cornelia Stuyvesant as he followed his grandson, still shouting useless orders at his functionaries. He had come as soon as he had heard Isaiah's panicked voice inside his head. Stuyvesant brought a fast blimp. Francis intends to go after the Tokugawa with it. It must not be delayed. I will not let him ruin everything, he muttered under his breath. Harkness awoke his power. To him it was a dark, malevolent cloud that swam in his lungs. He could still feel the connection to Stuyvesant, lips under poison fingertips, the beating of his heart, the electrical firings of his brain, the pumping of blood. They were inevitably connected by death magic. 
He'd never thought that he would need to do this to the pathetic old man, but they could not afford the interruption. Not now. The healer might slow him, but nobody could stop the full focus of his power at this range. Reap the whirlwind, you bloated fool. That was part 44 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bain intern Amanda Holton, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz, and a supernova flare signaling the sector of space where the Roman gods ended up after we kicked them out for loitering, and the applause-like clatter of a hundred floating continents banging together in glee to Eric Flint and Reiki Spore, authors of Castaway Planet. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. And keep reaching for the stars, wait, and keep reaching for the stars. 